Today we're going to begin our series in the parables of Jesus, and we're going to start with the great one. It's a parable of the, it's actually three parables, all kind of combined. Similar lessons are being taught, but the parables that are found in Luke chapter 15. Parables, I call them the parables of the three lost things. As you're going to see, there's things that come up missing and things that are, are going to be found. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 15 if you want to be in your Bible. Uh, if not, it'll be up here on the screen behind me. I'm using the NIV, so if you're using something different, it might be a little, little different wording. We'll jump in here as we begin this series on the parables. Parables are stories that don't have to be true. I don't know if you knew that or not, but we, when we look at the Bible, we talk about it being true. It is true, but a parable is a story that essentially is a preacher story. If you ever heard a preacher tell a story about a kid in Sunday school, right? It's made up, and you know it's made up. That's a parable. A parable is a story. It can be true or not true. The point of it is it's trying to convey a message. It's trying to teach us a moral lesson. That's what a parable is, right? And so the parables can be factually true or not factually true. That part doesn't matter. The whole point of it, there's a lesson that needs to be learned. And so Jesus is going to tell three parables trying to teach his first hearers and us a very important lesson. So we begin in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, and this sets the setting, sets the context for this message, okay, for, the, for these three parables. The audience is vitally important for you to remember as we go through these three parables. Jesus is, is focusing on these two groups of people, as you're going to see in just a minute, and trying to tell a story that, that stirs both of them, right? Gets both of them to action. So we see in Luke 15, verse 1, that this is, these are the group of people that Jesus is speaking to. So now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, tax collectors have never been popular throughout history. A Jewish tax collector was especially not popular because they, ta- they collect taxes for Rome. And so they were essentially working for the enemy. And so they were regarded, not held in high regard in Jewish society. And so Jesus has around him a group of tax collectors and just sinners. People who are choosing to live a life that's contrary to God, right? And then we have those, that group, and then the other group that Jesus is speaking to is the exact opposite side of the aisle, right? We have Pharisees and teachers of the law. The Pharisees prided themselves on being very morally righteous, right? They tried to avoid all kinds of, of bad things. And there are 613 commandments that are found in the Old Testament. The Pharisees added to that, because that wasn't enough, apparently, to make sure that they never came even close to breaking one of those. And so they added laws on top of laws. And so what we have here is we have a group of people who are, are, are highly religious and a group of people who we described as, as probably not religious at all. Those who are supposedly op- opposed to God by all appearances, by their lifestyle, by their words, they're opposed to God. And those who are supposed to be close to God. What you're going to learn from the story is the groups of people aren't who you think they are, right? And Jesus is going to point that out as we go through this. this is, these are great parables. It's one of my favorite. That's why we're starting with it, because I like it a lot. So we'll actually get into the first story. Jesus is going to tell us this first parable. This is what he says in Luke 15, verse 4. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Jesus begins telling a story based on agriculture. Everybody in this area is going to know this story, right? Shepherds are a pretty uh, popular, popular occupation. 
in Palestine. The thing about shepherds, though, is they aren't liked by most people. They're a pretty rough group of people. They spend a lot of time out on their own with animals. So the language that they use is probably rather colorful. The way they live, they probably don't smell all that great, to be honest. Their personal hygiene probably isn't at the top. And so it's interesting that Jesus chooses a shepherd as the first person of the story. The shepherd's testimony wasn't even good in court. Right? They, just, they weren't trusted people. They lived kind of on the fringe of society. And Jesus says, well, a good shepherd, if you're a good shepherd and you have 100 sheep, and you realize that one of them's gone, you don't go, huh? oh, well, right? We lost one, but I still have the 99. He says, you leave the 99. He says, you, you leave them even in the open country, which means that they're, they're susceptible to being taken over by a predator, by being killed by a predator. They're not protected. They're not in the fence, right? They're in open country. They're grazing. Any predator can come along and kill them. You leave those 99 behind, and you chase after, and you search for that one because the one matters, right? He says, a good shepherd doesn't let any of their sheep just go and wander astray. And if you ever work with sheep, you know they're not that bright. That's why it's rather rather harmful to our, our psyche and our pride when Jesus refers to us as sheep. Because if you ever worked with sheep, you go, oh, okay, well, that's not nice, right? It's not, we're not, they just kind of go, and they one goes and the rest of them go, whether it's off a cliff or into the pen to eat, right? It doesn't really matter. They just kind of follow each other, which is a humbling thing that Jesus would refer to us as, as the same creature. Good shepherd, Jesus says, leaves the 99 and goes chases after the one. Because the one matters. What he's trying to get the Pharisees and the teachers of law to understand, those who believe they're really righteous, is that who, what is Jesus doing? What does he refer to in the gospel as? Jesus is our good shepherd, right? And so what Jesus is trying to do is he's, trying to, he's leaving the 99 people who, who think they're righteous and think they have it all together, and he's chasing after that one, that sinner who's gone astray. If you remember how we began this section is the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are muttering under their breath about this Jesus. Look who he hangs out with. He hangs out with tax collectors and sinners, people he shouldn't be around. And Jesus is saying, no, those are the exact people I came to save. Those are the exact people I came to be around are the sinners and the tax collectors. Those who, who know that they're not perfect, who know they might need saving. The problem with the Pharisees and the tax collectors is what? They think they're so righteous that they don't they don't need saving. And Jesus says, no, I'm chasing after those who do. I love verse 7. Verse 7 gives us a picture of heaven. Jesus tells them and us, so I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 people who think they're righteous. I think who's the people he's talking about who do not need to repent. So heaven rejoices when, when someone who is, who is living a life contrary to God, turns that life around and says, enough's enough. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to live a destructive life anymore. I'm going to turn to him for my saving. Because there's a huge, huge party in heaven, which should also be a reminder of us. Christians should be people who can throw good parties. We should be able to celebrate with people when life goes well. We should be able to party well because heaven, apparently, they've got that down pat. That parting in heaven is, becomes its par for the course, that they rejoice and rejoice and rejoice. And so we as Christians just remember we shouldn't be all that boring. We should be people who can celebrate, people who can rejoice with other people, people who can throw a decent party. Now the story continues and Jesus tells us another parable. Along the same lines, I think a similar meaning. So he goes on to parable number two. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and she loses one. 
Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We see here the message is similar, right? We have a woman who has ten coins. Now these ten coins that Jesus is talking to is a day's wage. Right? It's a whole day's worth of working is this, is this coin. And, and in, in the culture and the time where Jesus lives, their floors were often made of stone, but the stone was loose. Right? The working wasn't tied. They didn't join, put the joints together. So people lost coins all the time. The reason that we have these coins to this day, archaeologically, is because they were lost constantly. Right? These coins would get lost in the floor. They get lost places so what's happened is the woman has dropped the coin. It's lost. She can't find it. It's a day's worth of wages. She needs that for food, for shelter, right? And so what does she do? She doesn't go, well, oh, it's a coin. Oh, I lost it. No, she lights the lamp. A little lamp that they would have to carry by themselves to get very little light. And she searches for it. She sweeps the house looking for it. And she looks and looks and looks. And if you're a person who loses things very often, like I sometimes do, it's really frustrating when you lose things, right? And you're trying to find them. I can't go to sleep until it's found. I can't do it. It drives me crazy. I've got to find it. Whatever it is I lost, I can't, I can't go to sleep until it's found. And that's how she is, right? She's persistent. She won't give up. And she sweeps and she sweeps and she looks and she looks. And sure enough, she finds the coin. When you find something you've lost, that feeling is it's great, right? I'm like, oh, thank goodness. Especially if it's something that you're supposed to give to somebody else. Then you're really grateful. Like, oh, I don't have to explain to him how I lost it. And again, the point of the story is what? Verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Do you think the message Jesus is trying to drive home to the religious people of his day is one, you're not, as you're going to see in just a second, you're not quite as righteous as you think you are, so be careful. And two, these people matter. That regardless of where we've been or what we've done, God has one stance towards us. One stance towards us. And that's of love. No matter where we've been, the things we've done, the things we've said, the things we've thought, no matter what, God's stance towards us is love. And he wants us more than anything. He wants us more than anything. Look at the last one. The last story is fascinating. I have a whole sermon on this one, so I won't preach that whole sermon today. We're going to kind of hit the cliff notes. But this one is, is, is vitally important to understanding where Jesus is going because this one, the meaning of this one, is a little harder to come, come across and come around to than the first two. It begins in verse 11. Jesus says this. He continues for the third parable. It says, There's a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. We have a son who goes to his dad and essentially says to him, Dad, I'd rather you be dead than alive. Give me your stuff. When does the estate get divided? When the person's died. The younger son has such disregard for his father. He says, Dad, I'd rather you be dead than alive. But since you're not, can you just give me my money? And the dad does it. Divides his estate and gives the younger son the money. The younger son gets his money, doesn't invest it, doesn't buy a home, doesn't do anything smart with it. What's he do? He goes to Vegas and he blows it in a weekend. I mean, Vegas doesn't exist then, but I'm just trying to make it relevant. You guys understand what I'm saying. 
He goes there and he, and he blows it all. The Bible tells us he squanders his wealth in wild living. He doesn't spend on anything that's going to last, right? Everything he spends it on is temporary and it's gone. All the hard work his mom, dad, brothers, all the work they've done this entire time to build this estate up and what does the younger son do with it is he squanders it. It's gone. And he has, literally has no money and has to go and get hired out. Now Jesus has a great sense of humor. If you caught it in verse 15, not only does he get hired out to somebody, but what's he get hired out to do? Feed pigs. What are pigs in the Jewish consciousness, in the Jewish idea? Are they clean animals or unclean animals? They're unclean animals. They're not kosher, right? They're unclean. And so Jesus is telling us in the story that it's gotten so bad that he has to defile himself by feeding an unclean animal, an animal which Jewish people weren't supposed to be around. They didn't eat, right? And he's not only has he is, is gotten that bad that he has to go work for them, it's gotten so bad that as he's looking, as he's slopping the pigs, and if you've ever been around pigs and fed them, it's not exactly a fun chore. They don't smell all that great. I don't know who the first person thought of eating one of them because you're like, oh, man, these things are gross. He's slopping the pigs, and he looks down, and he's so hungry, he thinks to himself, that's starting to look pretty good. I fed many animals in my day, never once had the desire to eat their food, right? And hey, it actually smells okay. I'm not eating it. I mean, it's not, that's not, I eat the food that eats that, but I'm not going to eat that. It's so bad that he's like, huh, might as well eat the pig food because no one's going to give me anything. Why would they? He's not from there. They don't know him. He probably was kind of a jerk. He, I mean, he's had all this money and now it's gone. You're not going to feel, feel, feel real bad for him if you don't know him. So he gets to thinking, what should I do? And Jesus tells us this is what, what happens. One, he pays us a great compliment in verse 17. Jesus does. He pays him and us. It says, when he came to his senses, which means there's hope for all of us, right? <laughs> that maybe eventually we'll figure it out and we'll come to our senses. Because when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. He concocts a plan, right? I'm going to go home because this is crazy. My dad has all kinds of hired servants who are at the bottom of the barrel, but they eat way better than I am. They have a roof over their head and food in their bellies. I'm going to go home and I'm going to say, Dad, I'm wrong. Which for all of us is difficult to do, isn't it? I'm wrong or aren't words that just pass easily from our mouths. But decides enough's enough. I'm going home. You can imagine the anxiety he has as he has to make that trip. Because he literally told his dad, Dad, wish you were dead. Thanks for the money. I'm gone. Dad's not going to be probably too happy to see him back. He's not exactly his favorite son at this point. So he makes the journey home, rehearsing this the entire time. Dad, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants, right? Rehearse time and time again. And look what happens in verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with anger, with rage, with malice, with... No. None of those things. It says, while he was still a long way off, which means his dad's been waiting for him, his dad's been looking for him, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Why do you be compassionate for this little jerk? I don't know why, Right? He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Instead of giving him what he deserves, the saying, get out of here, I don't want to see you again. What you did to, to me, your mother, your brother, 
was inexcusable. You need to leave. Figure it out yourself. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Instead of that, the father sees him a long way off, which means he's been watching for him, and does some unthinkable things in the ancient culture. He runs to him. Patriarchs of families don't run. That's why I don't run. That's my excuse. (laughs) They don't run. They don't do that. They don't run. That's embarrassing. Little kids run around and play. Patriarchs of family don't do that. But what does this patriarch do? He runs. He runs to his son and doesn't just run to him to, to pop him one right in the mouth, right? Like he probably deserves. That's not what he does. Instead, he throws his arms around him and kisses him. It's a welcome that I am positive this son did not expect to have. And the story gets even better. The son said to him, Father, I remember he's rehearsed this the whole way home. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And this, the next part he's supposed to say, make me like one of your hired servants, but he can't even get it out. Look what the father does in verse 22. It says, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost. He is found. And so they threw a party, like all good Christians do. Throw a party. See, what happens with the robe and the ring and the sandals is that's the dad's way of saying, you're my son. So he gives him the robe and the ring and the sandals because he's not a servant, you're my son. He didn't act like a son. He doesn't deserve it. But the father is so overjoyed to see his son again that he says, you're, you're back in the family. And if the story ended here, it would be Hollywood stuff, right? It would be great. But Jesus, because he likes tension, he isn't afraid of it, and was trying to teach a deeper lesson, doesn't end the story here. This is how we want the Hallmark movie to end. And my wife watches at Christmas time, and they're really boring and terrible acting. This is how those end, right? I'm just being honest. I can't lie to you guys. I'm your pastor. I, I can't. I can't watch those movies. They're bad. I don't. I'd rather watch any type of local theater than watch the Hallmark Channel. It's, it's not good, guys. It's B-list actors at best. Okay? Sorry, I got off topic there. If it was a Hallmark movie, it'd end now. But it's not a Hallmark movie. And so the story continues, and it gets a little more complicated, a little more difficult in verses 25 through 27. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Thinking it's weird, it's a Tuesday, why are we having a party, right? So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. Now put yourself in the older brother's shoes for just a minute. You've been home and you've been working on the farm. You've been diligent. You didn't tell your dad you wished he was dead and took all half the money. Because remember, when he asked to divide the estate, that means there's less for the older, older son now, right? And whatever they've now gained while the younger son's gone, guess what? It gets to be split now with the younger son again because the the father has done what? He's made him a son again. He gave him the robe and the ring and the sandals. And so now the younger son's back in the family. And now the older son's looking at his inheritance going, wait a second here. We divided it once and now we're going to have to divide it again? Well, that's not fair. And he's right. That's not fair. So what's he do? It's angry. The older brother became angry and refused to go into the party. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered, 
his father like this. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. And you can hear it in his voice, can't you? The anger, the resentment, and you can't blame him. He says, wait a second. I've been here all along. I've been faithful, I've been good, and I've worked hard for you. And this little punk comes back after spending all our, the family's money, squandered it, wasted it, and you just invite him back into the family like nothing ever happened. That's not fair. The older brother throws a tantrum. It's one of those I'm taking my balls, I'm going home situation, right? He said, I'm not going in the party. I'm not doing it. I'm not going in the party. For, I don't know if you noticed it in verse 30, but he can't even say his brother. He can't even say his name, right? What's he say? The son of yours. I'm not doing it. Now, now, the question we have to ask ourselves is now who's disrespecting the father? Now who's being a little jerk? story ends like this. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And the story ends with all kinds of tension, with it not being resolved which if you watch a movie, that's not a good way of ending the movie, right? You've got to resolve the conflict. That's the point of the story. You make the conflict, then you resolve the conflict. And it's not resolved. And remember for a second who Jesus' audience is when he tells this story. You have two groups of people. You have the sinners and the tax collectors, and you have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. One group looking down their nose at the other group. And Jesus tells us the story to, tell, to let us know that the religious person is in far more danger of the pits of hell than these people over here. That if you can't understand grace, that if you can't understand the fact that you can't earn it and that you don't deserve it, that there's nothing you can do to, 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 to somehow come before God and take care of all your sins, that you have to accept a free gift that is given to you. If you can't grasp that concept, you are in real trouble. That the younger brother is in better shape now than the older brother is. Because the older brother won't come into the party, and brothers and sisters, the party is heaven. And if you think that because of how good you are, you're going to get in, you are, you are badly mistaken. Because spoiler alert, none of us are all that good. Starting with me. I don't want to speak for you guys. I'm just going to tell you about me. I'm not all that good all that often. My sin is ever before me. And yet, I come to the cross, not even on my knees, on my hands and knees, begging for forgiveness. We have a God who stands towards us is love. And he says, absolutely, come home. Let's have a party and let's celebrate. Don't forget the original audience. And guard your heart from becoming a religious person. Because religious people don't party and aren't fun to be around. They just aren't. Pharisees and tax collectors are not fun to be around. They aren't. 
They're super judgmental. They are. They're not, it, no, one, no one comes to Jesus because of them. Matter of fact, they kind of push us away, don't they? And we, those of us who've been Christians for a long time, we've got to guard ourselves from becoming older brothers. Because older brothers push people away from the gospel of grace. We have all got to come humbly to the throne of God realizing we don't have much to offer. Matter of fact, our hands are empty. I've got nothing to give God. He comes all the way. I'm so grateful that he does. That our God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to this earth to offer himself as a sacrifice for us because we aren't perfect. And yet God loves us that way. He loves us despite of our imperfections, despite of when I run my mouth or when I do something that I shouldn't do, that I know I shouldn't do. God looks at me and goes, I love you still. It doesn't make much sense, I know. But neither did this third parable, did it? A younger son who has done that, who has said those hurtful things, who has done all that damage to the family, and he comes back and it's just okay. And it's a lesson for us. That no one, no one is too far from our God. That he can't reel them back in. There are all kinds of people who go their own way and do their own thing. Maybe we've been some of those people sometimes. People who do very terrible things. But God is there knocking at our heart's door, isn't he? Saying, let me in. Because God takes the ugly, the hurtful, the sinful, and he changes it. He molds it. And he transforms it. And he makes it new every day. And he turns someone who you'd never think could do anything good with their life and he turns them into people who do amazing, amazing things. All because they surrender to him. If you have not yet surrendered to him, what are you waiting for? He's the only one who we can trust with our hearts. He's it. He's the only one who's willing to give up everything for you and me. Let him in. He's knocking. Let him in. If you've been a Christian for 30 years and you're starting to look more like a Pharisee, let him back in. Let him in. Because that's not the kind of person you want to be. Those aren't the kind of people God wants. Are people who think they're better than they are. Remember, no matter how long we've been a Christian, it's always been and will always be about this gospel of grace. We didn't earn it and we don't deserve it. That's what makes it so amazing. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to read these stories today of the three lost things. We had a lost sheep, a lost coin, and some lost brothers. One who lived wildly but came back to you, and one who lived right but was far from you. Father, please guard our hearts for those of us who have been Christians for a long time of becoming the older brother, becoming the Pharisee, teacher of the law, the religious person, who looks down your nose at those who aren't yet in a relationship with you. Father, remind us today and every day that it's always been about and will always be about your grace. That there's nothing we can do to earn it, that we don't deserve it, that you give it to us freely. Father, we pray for those who maybe have never made that choice to follow you. God, that you would continue to work on their hearts and minds. That they would surrender everything to you, God, because you're the only one who can be trusted with our everything. You're it. You're the one. God, we thank you that you love us so much that you sent this, this Jesus 
your son, to live amongst this earth, to show us what love looks like in flesh and blood, and to offer himself as a sacrifice for all the junk of our lives, for all the sin, for all the skeletons in the closet. God, you're the only one that can clean that closet out. And we're so grateful that you do. God, please continue to mold us and shape us and to make us new every day. Transform us into the kind of people that you want us to be, knowing that we're never going to be perfect and that you love us anyway. God, we thank you and we love you. And it's in the powerful and healing name of your son, Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said.